And now, beloved, let us pray. Guide us, O God, by your word and your Holy Spirit, that in your light we may see light. In your truth, find freedom, and in your will, discover peace. Through Jesus Christ, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So last Sunday, I had the great honor of spending time with our six youth confirmands, who I'm now realizing are not here because they're on the youth retreat, which is good because I can brag on them and they won't get embarrassed. The topic of our lesson for the day was Jesus and the gospel. And since I was desperate to want to bridge the generational gap between these youth and the Bible, I racked my brain for the perfect question to do just that. And I came up with probably the most profound question I've ever asked to date. If Jesus was on Instagram, what would he post? Now, one confirmand said, well, he definitely wouldn't have posted about himself performing miracles. He wasn't that kind of guy. Another remarked, I think he would have just posted invitations to his talks or his parties. As to whether or not they thought Jesus would have had a lot of followers, the group was actually divided. But for all the disagreement and discussion, one common theme did emerge. If Jesus was on Instagram, he wouldn't have made it about himself. So wise and so true. Now this exercise was hypothetical, of course. Don't believe anyone who says they are, they are Jesus on Instagram. He isn't actually on social media. No, the most vivid picture we do get of what kind of guy and what kind of God Jesus was lies within the testimonies recorded in Scripture. Stories of sermons preached from mountaintops and in living rooms, miracles performed at home and on the road, friendships forged with prostitutes and tax collectors. Given that the record of Jesus comes to us in the form of written account, it would be easy and maybe even tempting to reduce him to words. But as we profess and proclaim, Jesus was flesh and blood, salt and light, glitter and dust. He was and he is the Son of God and the Son of Man. And like the most interesting of three-dimensional human beings, Jesus didn't live in a world full of answers. No, Jesus was the kind of guy, the kind of God, who asked questions, hundreds of them. He answered bad questions with good ones. He opened up conversations instead of shutting them down. And he always somehow got to the heart of what really, really mattered. And so this Lent, we are going to try and do the same. As we embark on this sacred journey towards Easter, we are going to consider, consider the questions that Jesus asked. To start us off, we go to the question Jesus posed in the gospel according to Mark chapter 5. What is your name? Listen up, folks, for God has spoken and is still speaking to us this day. They came to the other side of the sea, to the region of the Gerasenes. 
And when he, Jesus, had stepped out of the boat, immediately a man from the tombs with an unclean spirit met him. He lived among the tombs, and no one could restrain him anymore, even with a chain. For he had often been restrained with shackles and chains, but the chains he wrenched apart, and the shackles he broke in pieces, and no one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always howling and bruising himself with stones. When he saw Jesus from a distance, he ran and bowed down before him, and he shouted at the top of his voice, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. For he had said to the man, Come out of him, you unclean spirit. Then Jesus asked him, What is your name? He replied, My name is Legion, for we are many. He begged him earnestly not to send him out of the region. Now there on the hillside, a great herd of swine was feeding, and the unclean spirits begged him, Send us into the swine, let us enter them. So he gave them permission. And the unclean spirits came out and entered the swine and the herd, numbering about 2,000. And they stampeded down the steep bank into the sea and were drowned in the sea. The word of the Lord. So last Sunday, we talked about the weirdness of church. Y'all remember? For those of you who weren't there, let me summarize. In this day and age, going to church is weird. Being a Christian is weird. Jesus is weird. When all is said and done, we are all just a bunch of weirdos doing a weird thing in the name of a weird God. Now, I know that sounds kind of insulting, but I actually say it with the utmost respect. It is a reminder that what we do and who we are is actually not normal. As followers of Christ, we are called to see the world differently, from our neighbor to our enemy, from our power to our money, from our life to our death. It is weird. Another example of that weirdness is our observance of the sacraments, those rituals that remind us who we are and whose we are. Sacraments like baptism, communion, the ashing of foreheads, for those of you who were here on Wednesday, the washing of feet, and of course, everyone's favorite sacrament of all, demon exorcisms. Now, prescribed in Scripture, these rituals may seem timeless and weird, but they can actually reflect the current norms of our various contexts. Take baptisms, for example. Just a few weeks ago, we baptized Ariella and Cora Davis, donned in their mother's childhood dresses with warm water in the font. Michelle and I gently placed palmfuls of water on their delicate heads as you all welcomed them into the household of God. It was a tender and beautiful moment, and not at all what it was like 2,000 years ago. 
Now, back then, baptisms took place on Easter morning just before the sun rose. In groups separated by gender, converts would come to the baptismal pool stark naked, where they were then dunked not once, not twice, but three times in freezing cold water. But what was perhaps the more jarring part of baptisms back then was the question that they were asked. Dost thou renounce Satan and all his angels and all his services and all his pride? You see, back then it was normal to assume that Satan and his angels were lurking one baptismal font away. Back in the day, it was normal to assume that the world was enchanted that there was always more than met the eye, the invisible, the mysterious, the spiritual, a world where good spirits, clean spirits, and bad spirits moved all around us, in and through us, a world our modern brains kind of crash into in our passage for today. Now, if we were to use our modern lens to read this story, this is probably how it would go. In one corner, we have Jesus. Most people think his last name is Christ. He is the lean, clean carpenter's son from Nazareth and somehow also the son of God. He hasn't been in the game for very long, but he has already made a name for himself. His current record against demons is one and oh. And in the other corner, we've got Mr. No Name. No, literally nobody knows his name, but he calls himself Legion. As you can see, he's got no one in his corner with him. Not his family or his friends. No, they've either given up on him or he has given up on them. He has no official record to boast, but word on the street is that no man or chain can hold him down. Folks, it's the matchup of the century, angels versus demons. Jesus versus Legion, a fight to the finish where only one will make it out alive. Now, we like this version of the story because it fits our worldview. What you see is what you get. There is a good guy and there's a bad guy, and you better believe that the good one is going to make it out on top. It is easy to understand, easy to reconcile, easy to explain. And yet... As much as we like that version, I'm afraid, folks, it's just not that simple. Why? Well, because Jesus isn't that simple. And neither are we. After all, there's always more than meets the eye. Just look at the Gerasene demoniac. Right off the bat, the gospel writer tells us that he is the one who initiates contact with Jesus. He is the one who spots him from afar and runs towards him, screaming, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? Which means that he is the second person in the gospel according to Mark to correctly identify who Jesus is. The first being another unclean spirit in Mark 1. Before the disciples, before the religious leaders, before Jesus' death and resurrection, this supposed madman knows Jesus by name. He is more than meets the eye. Then, of course, there's Jesus who doesn't always do or ever do the simple or obvious thing. 
When he sees this man consumed with unclean spirits, he doesn't pull out his vial of holy water and usher the man back into the dank hiding place where he belonged. No, Jesus stops in his tracks in broad daylight and asks the man a very simple question. What is your name? Which is interesting if you think about it, because if anyone knew who this man really was and who he had become, it was Jesus, right? If anyone could just cast out a demon and be on his way, it was Jesus, right? If anyone could easily win the fight between good and evil, it was Jesus, right? But instead, he stops, looks into the eye of the tormented person, and asks him his name. He is more than meets the eye. But it's the man's response that is perhaps the most shocking. My name is Legion, for we are many. My name is Legion, for I am haunted by more demons than I can count. My name is Legion, for I have lived a thousand lives and died a thousand deaths. My name is Legion, for I have more story than I can share, more pain than I can carry on my own. My name is Legion, for I am more than meets the eye. In the past, whenever I've read this story, I've done so with what I can only refer to as a mathematical mind. Instead of imagining the text, I calculated it. Well, let's see here. We've got a one Jesus and a whole lot of demons. And we can actually determine the exact number of demons by calculating the number of pigs who drown themselves into the sea. So, you know, if we add the five and carry the one, we will see that there were about 2,000 dead pigs, which means Jesus is more powerful than 2,000 demons, which means that Jesus is Lord, which means that the inexplicable has been explained. But lately, I've been trying something new. Instead of looking for the right answer, I'm trying to look for where God is, where Jesus is in the story, where he puts his focus, where he stops to linger, what piques his curiosity. Now, I will admit that it is not easy because I love having the right answer. It helps me hold my own in an argument. It makes me feel like I know what I'm talking about in a room full of smart people. It even helps me sleep at night. But now when I read this story, I see that there is indeed more than meets the eye. Now when I read this story, I see that one plus one does not equal two. I see that being unclean does not mean you don't know who God is, and that being clean does not mean that you do. But most importantly, now when I read this story, I see that being a human is really complicated. Being a human is really hard. We may no longer view the world as some enchanted place where unclean spirits regularly take over our bodies, but that doesn't mean we aren't plagued by things we can't explain. Things that alienate us from our community, make us want to hide behind our shame and cry, and maybe even cause us to hurt ourselves and others. Now, when I read this story, most of all, I see that being a human does not mean that you are just one thing, good or evil, right or wrong, clean or unclean. Now I see that being a human is like being legion because there is always more than meets the eye. 
Now when I read this story, I think of a series of articles written by the journalist Nicholas Kristof entitled, How America Heals. Now he doesn't describe it this way, but it's basically an exploration of the demons of the legion that plagues America. In one of the articles, he tells the story of his childhood friend, Bill Beard, a good man who committed a terrible crime. Christoph writes, Bill Beard was as complicated as America, as creative, as loving, and sometimes as troubled. Like the garrison demoniac, Bill had a complicated story. His parents separated when he was just a baby, his mom abandoned him when he was one, and he lived in seven different houses in the first five years of his life. In his adulthood, Bill was unable to find a solid job or a sense of purpose, and so he did what so many of us do with the demons that inhabit our souls. He began to self-medicate. And when those demons refused to leave his body, he resorted to stealing and selling drugs just to survive, eventually leading him to commit a violent crime that would change his life and the life of another forever. Christoph writes, I worry that sharing the details of this crime will leave the impression that this horrific action represented all of who Bill was. He had another side full of humor, warmth, and eagerness to help others. Forgive me, Bill, for nobody should be remembered for the worst thing he ever did. I also fear that some readers may believe that I'm minimizing a brutal assault or will be perplexed that I remain friends with a violent drug dealer who in many ways destroyed a young woman's life. I make no excuses for Bill or his actions, Christoph writes, but he concludes, but one thing I have learned in a lifetime of reporting is that humans contain multitudes. Oof. There's more than meets the eye. As it turns out, the story in Mark is actually not that hard for us to relate to, even in our modern context. After all, we are also sinner and saint, light and dark, greedy and generous, terrified and brave. In our individual bodies, we house the multitudes of success and failure, pride and shame, joy and pain. We too have hurt and been hurt. We have lied and been lied to. We have judged and been judged. Each of us have proclaimed Jesus' name from the mountaintops and denied it more times than we can count. But as we see in Mark 5, Jesus wants to see us, all of us. Not just the pretty parts or the perfect parts or the plays well in public parts, but every single part of us, even and perhaps especially the parts we think are unclean, the parts we think are no good. Jesus wants to see it all. But be careful. Because after the seeing, trust that Jesus is going to get to the naming. Calling on us to speak and say and name the things that plague us. The demons that tell us that we are no good, that we are better off alone, that we are better off in hiding. Why? So then Jesus can heal us. 
As womanist theologian Yolanda Pierce notes, this question, what is your name, prompts the verbal identification of those forces that had stolen this man's joy and his peace and his sanity. And in the same way, we are invited to name our fears, our sins, our troubled interior places, along with naming those structural sins, injustices, and oppressions that create broken bodies and fractured minds, dehumanize and obscure identities. When Jesus asks the Gerasene, what is your name? He begins the first step in the healing process, naming that which has caused harm. The first step in the work of healing, reconciliation, and restoration is to name names. And so I have gone on longer than I usually do, which for some of you is an answered prayer, and for others of you is a curse. But if you will permit me, I would like to tell you one more story, because it's too perfect. Happened just this past week. This past week, I was catching up with a dear friend of mine from New York. A fellow mom and parent, we met on the playground when our children were just toddlers. So my friend was sharing with me that this past week she was looking for her daughter to come to the table for dinner. And so she opened the door to her room and she couldn't see her, but she could hear something. She could hear the sound of sobbing. So she looked around and she found her daughter lying underneath her bed, just weeping. And so, of course, as anyone in that situation would do, she asked her, child, what's wrong? What happened? And between sobs and gasping and breathing, my friend shared with me that her daughter said that I went to school today and my friends decided that I can't be friends with them anymore. It's a very common practice in preteen, elementary, middle school, high school, you name it. Now, my friend is not particularly religious or well-versed in religion, but all of a sudden, those sacramental words, those sacramental promises started to pour out of her mouth. The, The words, the names uttered in baptism at the table in Scripture, you are a beloved child of God. You belong to God. You are precious to God. Beloved, so are you. Whether at the table or at the font, washing feet or exercising demons, whether you live in a world of the inexplicable or the explicable, one thing truly does remain constant. One thing remains true. God loves you. All of you. Every single part. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate any of us, the worst of us, the best of us, all of us, from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. May it be so. Amen.